I would like you to say something into this microphone. Can you guess what that is? Something for the podcast. <gasps> is it flom time? It's flom time. It's flom. Um, hi. Depression is on. I like blue. Hey, it's blue day. Yes, and people is. are dying. Flom, four, two, three. Das blue event. Our guests. Record it live. Well, well, do you want to go first? Are we going to be on Radio Flom? You will. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I just knew. I just felt it. I'm, just, I'm a small cog in the in the giant yes. podcasting machine. Less is more. Always get that. Um, I forgot the word. Consent. Always get that consent. Perfect. Of course. So. Less is more. Well, it is random. Um, hi. If you want obscure Korean ingredients, go down to the Smile Market on Bradshaw. I yeah, bet nice. bet your ass they probably have it. Six what do you guys think? <laughs> and I can't help but look away. I did not look away. I wanted to look I really don't like what you're accusing me of right now. Welcome to the yeah, ASMR Flom Podcast. Yeah, and wait, 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 wait. You can't just say I slept through a car wreck and just move on. Get home and go to sleep. Mm-hmm. So just say whatever. Have you guys have one. a wonderful day, all right? Have a good one. Later, guys. You guys have a wonderful Thanks day. For by. Bye. You guys have a wonderful well, you know, day. Chad, you're, uh-huh. you're saying all this jargon and going on this. I, Absolutely. I, for sure. I have a piece of advice for you, Chad. Right. Yes. Be cool and mellow. You're right. I am. Chad. Chad. And my energy is pretty Chad. up high. Yes. Less is more. Oh, my God. He got me. <laughs> he got me. He got me with that one. That was good. Okay. All okay. Right. Okay. Next, okay. Next person who comes in, I'll take the mellow route. Be nice to your mother. What if he said, Radio Flom, less is more. You got stuff. 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 And stuff. And stuff. And stuff. Verodos plus Dario Roven stuff with more at verotu.net with links to Instagram, Spotify, etc.
sleep, sleep, go to the doctor and he'll prescribe sleeping pills. And with them, the side effects of their use, which may include amnesia, daytime grogginess, severe respiratory depression, sleep driving and other dangerous sleep-related activities. More common side effects of this pill's use include dizziness, dry mouth, unpleasant taste, difficulty with coordination, daytime drowsiness, memory loss, behavioral changes including depression and anxiety. to sleeping pills reported increasing their dose after the effects weren't as strong. Over time, they developed a tolerance to sleeping pills that turned into an addiction. In order to overcome this powerful addiction, you must first recognize that there's a problem. We must we first must recognize, recognize that there's a problem. Problem, problem, problem. Previously on ER. Thank you. You could have answered the telephone. I like music when I work. Is this your job? No, now it's just a hobby. I used to make uh, architectural models. You retired? You need two good eyes for that, that kind of work. You know of um, Crown Hall? Down at IIT? Yeah, that was designed by Mies van der Rohe. Yeah, I've heard of him. Mies and I worked together in the, uh, in the 60s. This is beautiful. Mies lived his life by the, by the laws of architecture. Order, space, proportion. One, there has to be an Someone pouring your pills internal for you? logic. Uh, in order, in, in any design. I can set you up with a weekly pill dispenser to avoid any other mishaps. Two, space is a real work of art. The, the building merely exists to, to, to shape it. I could also arrange for a visiting nurse to stop by. And three, proportion. I'll always be aware of how the structure fits into the... I want to help you. The, ...the world around it. Is that your boyfriend? Uh, no, 
It's a patient. I thought I was the only one. I have to go. She's dying. I need you to promise me you're not going to kill yourself in the next 72 hours. But, but Monday would be okay. I'm off the hook by then. Oh, so this is kind of a, a career move for you. How are you doing today, client? I have a name. What is your name? Jess. Oh, good. Okay, I'm write that down. Good. Wait, you don't know my name? I don't know your name. You've never said anything. You just come to this room and yell. Five minutes past 12 midnight. From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world, Genuine Modern Radio. Radio Flom. Before Stalin, there was one moment in Russia when advanced art served the power of the left, not only freely, but with brilliant results. Robert Hughes, Shock of the New, BBC, 1980. One of the few ways of reaching the mass of the Russian people was through visual images. The Orthodox Church had been doing this for a thousand years with icons. Without the European avant-garde, fauvism, cubism, futurism, there could have been no modern art in Russia. But before the revolution, both Moscow and St. Petersburg were truly cosmopolitan. And some of the greatest collectors in modern history, like Shukin with his Gogals and Matisses, lived in Russia. As communists demanded revolution, the most radical Russian artist of all, Kazimir Malievich, created art for a new world to come. Andrew Graham Dixon, Art of Russia, BBC, 2009. A series of stark geometrical shapes, thrusting away all the old conventions. He was marching towards one of the most shocking works of the 20th century. The Black Square. And it was like the black square, the black circle. What's the other one? The black square, the black circle. <laughs> Radio Flom Steve Mahalo talks. Black square. With Paul Ruhan, also known as Malevich Squared on Instagram. My favorite part of Malevich is when I introduce black square in my class. 
I watch everyone just respond to it. I watch the faces and they sit there like, what the hell is that? And then I work my way into white on white and then I show the circle piece where it's pushed off to the side asymmetrical and then I ask them, don't you want to move that back to the middle? And their reaction is, yeah. And I'm like, you can't. It's a painting. And then I say, Malevich is fucking with you. And he's not even alive anymore. What's really interesting, in 1922, the blockade was lifted on the Soviet Union. So they entered normal society in a kind of way in terms of they could exchange ideas. So Elizitsky set up an exhibition in the Van Diemen Gallery in Berlin. And Malevich, Malevich tried to argue that these are the paintings that should go there. The black square, the black circle, and the black cross. He argued those, those should go. He said, but if it's two paintings, it should be the black square and the white square, which is really interesting. This is where you start. So, so for him, they were very, very important, you know, the black square to the white square. If he only could choose two paintings in 1922, they were the two. So there's something about him trying something really sort of edgy, radical and also getting people to look at them and be provoked you know because obviously he did so many paintings the thing about Malevich he's 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 working hard all the time he's got this fantastic process what he does he doesn't start by painting he starts in his sketchbooks and what's what his whole idea behind that is if I'm painting and I've got these ideas um they're going to they're going to get mediated and I'm going to delete things. Now, if I write in a sketchbook, I'm going to write quicker and there's going to be less of a gap between what I think and what I write on paper. So that's his process normally is to, is, 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 is to write um, on paper and, and then execute a painting afterwards. So there's a lot more sketches of Malevich than there's paintings. Part of that as well is in the Soviet Union or Russia after the revolution or even Russia during the First World War, it was hard to get canvas and it was hard to even paint on plywood, you know, what he liked, liked to do. For him was he could come up with these incendiary, really quick ideas without any editing going on, thinking about, oh, actually, am I going to waste paint? I've only got one bit of canvas. So I think he's really great in terms of creating, creating, creating. He's fantastic. Though. I'm going to look at a sketch that Malevich did in 1915. He writes in a box. So this is before the black square. Okay. So this is one of his sketches. And in it, he writes in Russian. So um, we, we, we won't test your Russian or any of your listeners' Russian. But what he writes in the side of black box, a black square, but, but just on, on graph paper, is the word derevna, which means village. So he writes the word village. And then at the bottom of it is, in very quick writing, even Russians can't read this. And many Russians can't read it. So he writes it. So you can tell the flow. You can tell how quick he, how excited he is. Inside this black box, he writes the village. Instead of painting huts and corners of nature, it's better to write the village. And in it, everybody emerges with more particular details encompassing an entire village. So what he really did there was he was writing and he was being he was being educated by this 15 year old uh, poet called Allegrov. Now this young guy was dealing with linguistic formulations. He later became Roman Jakobson. He's the founder of linguistics. 
Yeah, Roman Jakobson. Yeah. So this 15-year-old's talked to Malevich and saying, you know what, there's this guy called Alexei Krachinik. We both know him, but he's got stuff. He's doing this really great stuff, and he's saying it's all about the word. But Allegra said, actually, I think he's got it wrong. It's all about the sand, the abstract sand. See, the problem with language, it's devalued. You think about how my prime minister in Britain devalues language. You think about how Trump devalues languages, language in America. Yeah. And so actually to use that language, particularly in Russia in 1915, when it's censored, it's far better not to be censored. And so create something without meaning. So that's how the black square comes. That's how the village comes. So from linguistics, he then translates that idea of just calling it the black quadrilateral, which later then becomes called the black square. And from that, mean that there's limitless meaning. You know, and, th and that's the amazing thing about the black square. Even today, we could have an argument about what we think the black square means. In your class, all your students have the same idea about it. What was really interesting, like it was black square is 104 years old. Mm -hmm. But what was said at the beginning of, of the black square still remains 104 years later. So when he put this black square up with 39 other paintings in a room, people fixated on the black square. It annoyed them. It irritated them. Is this painting, is this art, you know, the black square, if you put, put in a corner in Russia, that's where a lot of peasants in their home put an, an icon. So he was sacrilegious. He was devaluing art. You know, he was very, very provocative. When Benoit, who's a, a critic, wrote about it and said, oh, this is not really art. And, and also, um, this is sacrilegious. He actually even wrote that in a liberal paper. One of the reforms after the 1905 revolution in Russia was to allow newspapers for political parties, the liberals normally, and the conservatives. Obviously, the Bolsheviks weren't allowed to have a, a newspaper. But in those newspapers, because they had like sort of daily newspapers, they started out art columns. So the liberals used to sort of say they'd, they'd be open to sort of uh, art that was a little bit edgy, but not too edgy. The conservative, the conservative newspapers just wanted pictures of kings and, you know, really, really important people. And Malevich was challenging all of those people, but they didn't know how to write about him. All that generation of modernists, what they had to do, they had to write manifestos because there was no art critic about what they was doing. So Malevich was forced to write about what he was doing. The only thing about Malevich, he wasn't that well educated. He was influenced by... Cubism. So some of his stuff is quite terse and it's all over the place. And uh, it was a little bit looked down on as well. But actually, no one was capable of grappling with the art that he was doing. And he made many different attempts. The other thing about it is when, when, he, when he displayed the black square in, in um, December 1915, it was the last Futurist exhibition called Zero Ten, the last Futurist exhibition. There was 14 artists there. And what was really interesting, these were, these were left artists. These were to the left. They were the most radical artists in Russia, which was by 1914, you'd, actually, you'd have to argue that was the centre of the world for art. You know, 19, before that, before 1912, before that, you'd have to say Paris was. But by 1914, 1915, Russia was having its own confidence and had gone past the great innovators of Paris. There was two rooms. In one room... There was Tatlin, 
and Tatlin came up with a great innovation of corner release. It spent some time going to Paris. It's seen some of the um, stuff that Picasso had done. So actually, that was very radical art, even more radical than Picasso. But to top that, Malevich came up with this other idea of that what we should have is a fully abstract art on a white background with geometric shapes. And we'd start off with this monochrome. We, we call this the first, the zero point. So we put the black square on the white background. So, so straight away, this was something super radical. But actually, in the next room was also something radical, Tatlin. Now, the night before the exhibition opened, it's a really interesting situation. They were so energy charged, Tatlin and Malevich. They both wanted to be the top of the pole. You know, very competitive. Of the most competitive, radical artists in Russia, which means artists in the world at that time. So Malevich and Tatlin weren't even going in the same room. They nearly got involved in a fist fight, so probably quite a little bit macho and that kind of thing. <laughs> they were stopped by Alexandra Exter, um, who, who's a woman artist who didn't show any of her paintings at Zero Ten, but she stopped them. And on top of that, um, Lubov Popova and Nadezhda Ordatseva, they'd spent a couple, they were quite well off from very good backgrounds, and they'd spent some time in Paris learning analytical cubism at La Pellette with Le Falconer and, uh, you know, and um, Metzinger, who were more famous than Picasso and Braque at the time because they, they, were very, um, they were very open about what they were doing and they were teaching <laughs> people where Braque and Picasso were sitting in a room, you know, experimenting and all the rest of it. So they weren't going outwards. So, so they thought, you know, they, they were women painters at zero ten, after painters were women out of the seven, and after painters were men, which was very different to the rest of the world at that time. And Aldatsova and Popova were really clear: we are not going in the same room as Malevich. What he's doing is too simple. You know, we're analytical cubists. We're cubist futurists. We're learning ourselves. We can't just paint the square. We're serious painters. So they quickly put over Tatlin's door room for professional painters. So that was an so they provoked <laughs> they provoked Malevich a provoked radical painters into one nearly having a fight with him. Uh, half of them said they won't stay in the same room as Malevich, and a couple of them, which they're sort of saying is Malevich is this is not painted, this is not art. So he was challenging the most radical artists in the world at that time, and they they couldn't deal with it. So no wonder today your students. And a lot of Russians themselves and a lot of people around the world do not understand Malevich because the most radical people didn't at the time. Um, so, uh, you know, people say he can't paint. At zero ten, he did a couple of exhibitions. And um, this guy comes up to him really angry. Uh, not uncommon when people look, look at the black square. And uh, even today and said, uh, you can't paint. So Malevich, he's got an easel up, and he says, oh, can't I? Why don't I do this for you? And he starts painting, and he does this, like, impressionist painting really sort of quickly. And he looks at the guy in this front who's really sort of angry and says, look, I can do this stuff. The thing is, I choose not to. So what he's basically said, I've gone past that. So I've gone past impressionism, post-impressionism. I can do it. You know, I'm a great painter. But actually, this is where this is where painting uh, that 
it has to end there. There's a new way of painting. And this is where the new way of painting. And the black square is the beginning of that. Not just the end of it. It's the beginning of a new way of painting. A fully abstract painting based on colour later on and also sort of geometric sort of forms. So I think that's what's really great. A lot of people get stuck on the black square. Malevich got them to, you know, fixate on the black square. But he was said, let's change art. And the black square was the beginning of it. The other thing is, even today, many people can't get past that black square. So that's amazing to me that even in his grave, uh, 104 years later, he's still challenging people. And that is brilliant. That alone is like okay. the whole episode. <laughs> I feel in this, uh, I teach several levels of typography, starting with getting them to appreciate the letter forms. They learn calligraphy. They work their way into typesetting, experimental course, which just goes crazy. And then the class I teach after that is how to simplify, how to design for just reading and books. It takes uh, four courses until I could get students comfortable enough to literally remove everything from their work and just put down a line of type by itself. It's this frightening space. And, and I understand this as a designer because I've had to learn that too. Uh, in fact, if you see my work lately, it's a lot simpler than the stuff I used to do. And it takes guts to go there. It's really hard to be okay with simple. The, once you find it and the power of it, there is so much you can do. So how did he get to simple? In, in 1913, so in Russia, in, in, in the summer, people go to Dacha in the countryside. You know, you grow fruit, um, you know, and the, you save it for the um, winter, that kind of thing. Because you have very hot summers, very cold and long winters. So you have this short burst of sun. So he went out to this uh, sort of dacha and he was there with Maltuzin and he was there with Krychenik. And they spent all summer together. Maltuzin was, uh, was a poet, composer. Uh, Krychenik was uh, come up with this sort of a new poetry, which he called Zayom, which, which if we look for the closest translation we can get, it was, it was one word put together, which would be beyond sense. Zayum, beyond sense. So it's, it's, it's transrational. It's uh, not logical. It's beyond uh, the, the rational world. So they're sitting there all summer talking about what they can do and, you know, having a chat. And they come up with this sort of manifesto. And they agree, actually, to come together and work on a project. December 1913, they, they come up with, the, with a futurist opera. So this would be victory under the sun. Victory over the sun. Victory over the sun. Okay. If, if the sun goes out, not only do you get the blacks, you know, all blackness, the sun itself is linked to enlightenment and enlightenment's linked to the rational world. In 1913, they're saying the rational world don't exist. There's more to the world than, the, 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 than that. If we look at what's going on there, we've got science where there's atoms, where there's things that's happening around us that we can't see. Um, on top of that, Freud's come up with his idea that there's this thing called the unconscious, that, you know, there's all these different things happening. Of its time, it's a little bit ahead of its time as well. And it, and it has two performances at Luna Park. So Malevich does costumes and the background. The play is written by, say, Krujenik. Uh, the libretto is by uh, Velimir Klebnikov. And the music is by Maltuzin. 
Mikhail Mutuzin. And they have this sort of, uh, they put this play on, they sell all the tickets out, and it's put on by the Union of Youth, which is, which is a group of sort of artists in St. Petersburg. And half the audience clap and, and, and cheer, and half the audience boo and get really, really angry. It's a sensation. It's a scandal. But Malevich is remembered for that because what he does, he creates a whole range of costumes for, for the actors. They're pulled together. They're geometric sort of shapes. They're very sort of colourful. And on top of that, he uses lighting to cut across the stage. And on top of that, it looks like the arms sometimes disappear when the, when the actors are moving like sort of robots and they're stopped from moving around. But, but it's actually very, very memorable for Malevich's costumes and the way he put the light in. There's also backplots as well, which he designs, which the actors don't actually sort of walk through like curtains. They actually rip through them. So it's very sort of different. He says that, that one of the backcloths was like a, sorry, half a black triangle and half a white tri- triangle. Uh, I'm not sure if it was. Professor Shatskik, who writes about it, sort of says... Actually, I think he actually did that later, made out he did it in 1913. I think the backcloths were a bit more complicated. But whether he did or whether he didn't, it took him two years to get from that idea of this atonal music by Mutuzin. These nonsense words. My favourite bit is, like, translated from Russian, is, like, the actors are saying all these sort of crazy words. So they're walking around and they're saying words like, sweaty mushroom you know, which is a nonsense sort of word. On top of that as well, the play itself has got a theme. You know, it, the victory over the sun means that the sun, the sun um, is, is extinguished. So if, if the sun's extinguished, what happens? You, you have blackness, surely. So, so there's a link between that and the black square two years later, but it took him two years to get to that. And there's no logical path between that and the two years of paintings, what he did in between. You can see little glimpses of it in different paintings. What he did by the black square is he actually sort of took the logical path. And I think the, the thing about it, he stayed, spent all of his life in Russia. He never really went abroad, though he did go through different parts of Russia. Um, he didn't go abroad like other people. He was less well educated. So I think in that way, the great thing about Malevich is your ultimate radical revolutionary. Where people stop, he moves and does the ultimate thing. And that's what the Black Square is. It's the ultimate in art for that time. Uh, the, the other thing is it's 1915. Malevich is 35. So he's not a young artist by any means. You know, he's he's got to become an artist. And the, 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 the First World War is in full swing. It's not a war like any war that's gone behind it. It's more mechanised. It's not a short war. It's going on. There's endless lives being lost. Russia is no longer Russia because lots of land has been lost to the Germans. So Russia is shrinking, you know, every day. The borders are changing. The Tsar is um, not fighting a good war. The German army is smaller than the Russian army but it's better equipped. So actually a smaller army is beating a bigger army. Malevich a year before does try to figure some of the work that he did under after the revolution. He tries to connect with society. So one of the things that he does at the beginning of the war, sort of these sort of like cartoons, which are very big in Russia and go back, uh, there's a long tradition of them called Lubuk, which they're, they're these sort of mass produced, sort of quite vulgar sort of cartoons where... Malevich 
got this old, these old peasant women, instead of actually sort of like spearing the hay from the ground, they're actually spearing German soldiers. Well, that might be good in 1914 and, uh, you know, uh, thinking like that. But, nine, but by 1915, you've seen what the war's done. You know, loads and loads of uh, Russians have been killed, captured, maimed and the rest of it. And, and the war's without an end. Malevich himself, uh, by 1915, is now a first reservist. So he's waiting to be called up and sent to the front. So he's come up with all these great ideas. And the thing that I think also pushes the black square and gets in there quicker is he knows any day soon he's going to be sent to the front in the First World War as a 35-year-old man. He also starts to write about a whole range of stuff. And you get lots of quotes where he's writing to people and saying, you know, I need to get this done quickly. I might not be here next year, but I need to leave this sort of legacy. You know, all the way through his writings, even when he's at the front and he's sending back speeches for other people to read because he don't know if he's ever coming back. So he's trying to create a legacy. So if he does die in this war, he leaves behind these great inventions. There's something about the war itself that makes him creative. Uh, he hasn't got a lot of time and he's rushing through ideas. So that's why in 1915, at at zero ten, he brings every painting that he's got under this new new form of painting, which he calls suprematism, which means it's the most higher. It's the it's it's it's, it's higher than anything else. It's about the mind. It's not just about sort of depicting nature. So that's why that's why it's not about realism. It's not about the objects of the real world. This is a higher higher state. And if you look at the real world in 1915 in Russia in Europe, it's not a great place to be in. Actually, we need to be at we need to be at a higher level as human beings. We shouldn't just be killing each other. There shouldn't be a war against the body. And he says this in his writings: it should be a war against the body. It should be a war against the culture. So what he's trying to do, and let's use the words of the time, he's, try, he's trying to create a, a philosophy in his painting which is higher than than the real world. And this real world is a world of war, barbarism. And people being pushed towards tanks, guns, and dying every day. So what he's saying is, we need to create a new man. That's that's the that, that's that's the parlance of those days, a new man. But in it, at zero ten, half the artists are women. So there's something different going on in Russia to the rest of the world. So where other people were sort of saying, oh, let's let's look at cubism. Uh, in Russia, they come up with cubo-futurism, which link cubism and futurism, but come up in their own sort of way and different ways of inventing it. Um, he went a step forward. You could actually argue, the thing is, there's a strong case that Dadaism wasn't actually invented in in Switzerland in 1915. It actually was invented in Russia with victory over the sun and the Zion poetry of Krychenik. The thing about the black square, it takes it further because there's no words on plywood, not even canvas. It is art because it's sitting in the gallery, so that's what makes it art. It's sitting in the gallery at that time. But, but it's actually provoking everyone all, all, all the time. People don't know how to deal with it. Less is more. Sweet, less is more.
burning into the night There's too many men, too many people Making too many problems I'm not much love to go around Can't you see this is a land of confusion
Challenging the bourgeoisie since 1923. Less is more. And now, a bad English translation of Alexander Pushkin. My class was busy with me. My father, Dovri, came. Please tell me that I received my mention in Moscow. Geography studied and paid. Never hang a wall. It was used, and there was a very large map and thick paper. I'll see. I was a geographical geography. My father blessed me in a drawer. To be honest, go towards Bupre. My father reached. The color raises the bed from him, guiding him outside the room. He was released that day from his service. Not so eloquent. Joy, Savelcha. My learning with this ended. Radio Flam. This guy is kind of a tinkerer. He was living in an apartment, but he had a friend who lived in the woods, and his friend used to let him build things. And one of the things he built was a hot tub that was heated with a wood stove. And it worked really well. And it was economical. So then he went on to build his own house and he did a really good job with it. In fact, he built most of the house himself. It ended up costing 200,000 pounds, but if he hadn't done the work, it would have been over 350. So he saved 150,000 pounds by doing the work himself. Hmm. Then there was another one whose relationship got destroyed because of the house, but he finished it and lived in it. But it was built out in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and everything looks the same. And that's just the way it is. And what's happening now is you have a bunch of young people who grew up in those row houses or the council estate houses or whatever and they were fine for their parents it's kind of like tract housing was fine for our parents the row houses were fine for their parents but they don't want to live there and they want to branch out and do their own thing so architecture in britain is getting more innovative than it's been for the past half a century actually i think since before the victorians british architecture has always had a very um, communal bent to it. Even among the rich people, they would all build their estates to look like everybody else's. Everything looks the same over there. Radio Flom takes a look at 
grand designs. Grand Designs is a British show. It's been on for like 20 years. And it's about people who cannot afford to buy the house they want. Either because they don't have any money, they don't have any land, they live in London and there's just no space left. So it's about people who figure out how to make it work. They find a piece of land, they find the money somehow, and they find an architect who's willing to work with them to build a house that will fit their land, because typically the land is a small little plot. And they figure out how to make it work, and then they build it, and then you can see it. And I've seen houses, one of the most elaborate ones was one that had, it was built in London on a very narrow lot, but the house needed to be like 4,000 square feet, so they had to build up. They built a basement because the, um, the building code said it couldn't be any more than three stories high, and they needed four. So they built a huge-ass basement. And then, in order to get the light to come in, they had a whole section with just windows in the ceiling. Another thing they added was a pool. It was really a horrible build. It was just very, very stressful. Lots of problems. They kept running into problems with the basement. It flooded a couple of times. But they got the house built. They had the big 4,000 4, square foot house that they wanted. And so it's a really interesting show because every, most of these builds are fraught with difficulties. Like the one, the 15th century inn that burned down because of a faulted chimney. They needed to rebuild that because they wanted to stay there because of the historical value of the place and they didn't want to move. So they had to figure out how to rebuild a 15th century building so that it was both modern and met their needs but traditional and fit the historical aspects because it's, it was a historically registered building. So that one was interesting. And then that's the guy who ended up project managing another project that was very similar with another 15th century building that burned up. They're typically all married couples. There was another one that I saw that I really liked, which was in London. It was a gay couple. They wanted to live in London and they couldn't afford anything, so they bought an old, dilapidated water tower, and they made that into a house. So that was eight stories, um, and they had an elevator. And it's not just in London, it's all over the UK. And now there's, there's a New Zealand version and there's an Australia version. We're trying to collaborate, but it can't be all the one-way street. From a field, these people are building a street, a street like no other in Britain. They're doing a series called The Street, and what it is, it's based on a neighborhood in Holland that started out in the 70s as 30 housing sites. But the, the thing is that in order to get a site there, you have to be a self-builder, and it has to be designed by yourself, you have to be the foreman, you have to get your own builders, you have to do it all yourself. The land is not cheap. It's a unique boutique kind of neighborhood. Well, the one in the Netherlands now has over 3,000 houses. So the British are just starting it. And um, the Grand Design Show is doing the street and they're featuring two builders every week because they have a total of 40 lots 
that are being built. So in our first episode of Grand Designs, The Street, the series in which we follow 10 plucky pioneering households all building their own homes in the middle of a field to make, if you like, the, the embryonic start of a, of a new community. I have to say, just describing that makes me realize just how perhaps bad an idea that was in the first place. Next up, you're going to listen to Doors Venabili by This Is The Bridge. Van der Rohe designed the most plain building ever in New York City. 
the Seagram's building on Park Avenue between 52nd and 53rd. Decoration is a sin. Without Mies, who was also the final director of the German Bauhaus, our skyscrapers would not look like the modernist rectangles that they are now. Before this, buildings were covered in pattern, stone, and concrete, just like the Brooklyn Bridge, which didn't need to have stones attached, but they attached them so this structure, the tallest in New York at the time, wouldn't look out of place. Less is more is the slogan he is most remembered for. Mies didn't come up with it, he just loved to say it a lot. When he worked or when he was at parties, he used it as a conversation starter. Then he'd walk away and never finish the conversation. He'd even say it to a cashier at Walgreens when he'd buy packages of Wrigley's Spearmint Gum. He was known for removing the outside paper sleeve from each stick so he could just stare at the simple foil rectangle. Then he'd start shaving off the metallic rectangle part, just so he could find that little white wrapper part. It's all plain and stuff. People in line behind him would get annoyed, but that was just Mies being Mies. Less is more is a way of looking at the world where simple and dramatic becomes more powerful than the chaos we live in. It is about unity and order, because being eye-catching or constantly appealing is also stressful and annoying. And shouting at people isn't very nice. Like my 
my page, share my post, like my page, share my post, come on and follow me, like my page, share my post, like my page, share my post, like my page, share my post, come on and follow me, Bahamas forever, this time so clever, Bahamas forever, can you feel the fever? Gropius with Bauhaus Forever. And I am here now streaming about to talk to Gropius himself, the international sensation, the new Bauhaus influencer, Gropius. Hello, hello. Thanks for having me. Hello, Gropius. I see you everywhere. You're influencing everything. Um, All over Instagram and Facebook. That's right. And just coming out of my toaster, I think, too. So, Gropius, Walter Gropius. Walter Gropius, Deutscher Architekt und Founder of Das Staatliches Bauhaus, Weimar, 1919. Are you related to Walter Gropius? Uh, Yes, um, I am in some ways. Uh, I I believe that uh, I can channel... uh, his DNA through my performances. I guess I must have hacked his uh, DNA and and then just kind of uh, live it through. I'm Walter Gropius' successor. Oh, wow, cool. Do friends call you Walter or Gropius? They call me Gropius. It's got three R's because it's a lot more sexy than the original Walter. If you can do the rolling of the R's, then you are this true Gropius fan. Oh man, I never could do that. I've tried. Propius. I I need to practice. Yeah, well, um, I'll let you practice. That's okay. We can all get there. So, the music itself, where did that come from? You know, my love for Bauhaus is so strong that I could never write about anything else. It's the, the, the best art movement of the 20th century, and still to date. It had a bit of everything. It had some art, some design. It had some architecture, of course, which was probably the most famous things I remember. And they tried to to put it all together. And they succeeded to go through time and become a huge influence on everything artistic today. And the fact that it's recognized everywhere in the world, uh, it it makes it something special. I, I like to relate to that. I like to feel special. I like to feel like I have influence on the world. And therefore, I, I, my, yeah, like I said, my love is so strong for it that I had to write about it. These are my guts inside these songs. Bauhaus Forever was my first single hit. I released it in, in August 2018, recorded it in Weimar, the original Bauhaus city. The, the world tour premiere happened in the former Bauhaus Museum of that town, performed and gave a signing session to all my fans there. And this was the kickoff of actually a world tour. I traveled uh, all across the globe in various countries, only to end up in the final city in New York. Of course, one of the biggest city 
of the world in terms of influence. And uh, there I was uh, in my right place in your country, the Flom country. Flom, New York, modern, founded 1923. Le Corbusier? Oh, you say it better than me. Of course I do. Le Corbusier, Swiss French architect. First trip to New York, 1935. Of course, Le, Le Corbusier is one of my favorite architects. Uh, he is uh, one of the most influenced one. And of course, he had his righteous place in New York, the original influenced city. The lifestyle he promoted was very modern. You're living this modern. What is your daily life like? Well, I, I like to wake up um, in a very minimal house, a house that has uh, a lot of windows, some might say that it's uncomfortable, that it's too purist, but this is the style for me. This is where I feel most at home. I like to wake up in a, in a Bauhaus style uh, house, quite frankly. I go about my day and like to be as minimal as possible and elegant as possible through various actions. Do you channel any of the other Bauhaus masters? Do you have Feininger just sort of wandering around like he did a hundred years ago? Lionel Feininger, Deutsch-Amerikaner artist and cartoonist, Bauhaus workshop master. After Gropius, uh, I think, you know, I'm sure that uh, actually Mies van der Rohe would be my second favorite Bauhausler. Mies van der Rohe. You already know who he was, if you've been paying attention. He fully committed to the elegance of what a building should be. And not only that, but truly promoted how these buildings and art objects should be presented to the world. Meaning that they should embody this exclusivity. You're making uh, this kind of a product that is well-researched and therefore it should be presented as something rare and something elegant. And he understood that quick, probably more than any other of the Bauhaus actors, uh, to actually encapsulate what it means to have a, a luxury product. Did you visit the Seagram's building when in New York? Well, yeah, of course. Gropius was invited to go inside this building. Don't you know who I am? I felt Bauhaus inside completely, all the way up. So beyond New York, did you see any other part of the United States? Yes, of course. I, I had a stop uh, and gave my show in, in Los Angeles. Los Angeles, um, I could relate to as well. Of course, it's not as uh, influence-friendly, let's say, as New York. But the citizen of the city uh, really put on a lot of effort on their appearance. I was attracted to that, of course. How can you not make a work of art with your face like the way that I do? Gropius displays this beauty. I displayed this beauty. I displayed this elegance and I found it also over there. So on Instagram, you've entered the world of influencers. So as an influencer, you have a lot of say in how people live their lives. So what are some of the things we should be doing to be more like Gropius? My fans know already that it's all about being elegant. Let's say you're trying to be elegant, 
it's not going to work. You have to really embody it. You have to feel it through your core. And the way that you move through space, the way that you talk to people, it makes you special. It makes you apart from everyone else. And this will lead you to looking also very expensive. Looking like you have a lot of power and status. And this is what the Gropius essence is. It's all about elegance and looking expensive. I know that my fans already know this, but probably the flomist out there could join the movement as well. There's a lot of books on the Bauhaus, but I have a feeling that's not enough. You have to follow me on Instagram first to have this daily intake of, of what it is. This is one of the first thing. Then you like everything and you add comments. This is the basic stuff. The other thing that someone can do to become more like Ropius is um, to have their daily intake of, of Bauhaus items. If you can afford a Wagenfeld lamp on your desk at home, I completely recommend it to you. Wilhelm Wagenfeld, Deutscher Industriedesigner und Bauhaus Student. Famous for Bauhaus Table Lamp, 1924. It's only 400 euros or so. And of course, it's a, it's not an original. It's, it's a, it's a re-edition of the original plans that Wagenfeld made. But this will make your life a lot more easier. And then you too will start to feel Bauhaus inside. And this is what I'm all about. So you've been releasing sort of a new track, what, every year at this point? So what's the latest one about? The latest one is called Feel Bauhaus Inside. Um, Feel Bauhaus Inside is a twisted love story. You know, I fell really deep in this hole of loving Bauhaus. And I had to come out to myself that actually it's probably more than just an interest, like an artistic interest. It happened to be that uh, any sort of human relationships that I had were not as strong as the relationship that I feel with various Bauhaus objects or with various Bauhaus buildings. I dream about them. I wake up. And I think about it again, all day. It became an obsession, and one might could say that it also became a fetish. I'm in love with Bauhaus objects. Uh, quite frankly, I, it was a little bit of a disturbing thing for me to even to realize. I came out to myself one day uh, when I was uh, just walking towards the nearest Bauhaus building. And when I felt Bauhaus inside of that building, I realized, well, I need to tell the world and uh, all this shame that has accumulated over this fetish needs to go away. And I'm going to tell them in this new single hit, which I hope will top the charts very soon. You are on Spotify and you have merchandise too. So where can we get more of you? The singles are available, yes, on Spotify, but also on Apple Music, on Amazon and iTunes. You can purchase them all the way over there. I also have some special limited edition merchandise. Probably my most prized merchandise item is the limited edition vinyl record for Bauhaus Forever. 
there's only three of them in the world. And uh, you can purchase them for the small amount of 500 euros. Uh, it's really nothing considering how many there are and how much value they will gain over time. And the other merchandise item uh, would be amazing posters. I have two new posters for the Field Bauhaus Inside uh, new release, which hint to what is the third merchandise item, and it's the Bauhaus butt plug. The Bauhaus butt plug is the ultimate Kropius merchandise item, which lets you also feel the passion for Bauhaus in the same way that I do. It's a medium-sized butt plug of 13 centimeters, made out of silicone, and it has the logo of Bauhaus butt plug coming out in relief uh, on the surface. Therefore, when you insert it, you can actually feel it. All these exclusive merchandise items uh, can be purchased uh, on my Instagram page. You just send me a message via uh, private message and I will answer you and ship it to you in a second. I'm uh, currently working on my new music video for Field Bauhaus Insight. It will feature me, of course, the ultimate Bauhaus pop star, dancing and singing. And I will be inside uh, one of these originals. And I will be featured inside the original Bauhaus buildings in Germany. This will come out uh, in the next month, and I'm very excited to share with all of my fans uh, this wonderful artwork of mine.
tell me not to worry. While in fact I am fuming over concerns over this planet. I have thousands of concerns and worries. And people go. Ah, go live in a forest. It's like I get no respect for actual responsibility. And actual ideals. I'm being devastated by modern language. Modern civil do-it-yourself architecture plumbing the classical spirit apart is tearing up my heart. Civil customs and morals are making me throw up. Why are you all so fucking stuck? It's, like, not a thread online accurately describes how modernism evolved and not in the least how it can be stopped. Progress. Attack. Join the avant-garde. Uncle Henry, I thought apple pie was your favorite. It is, Mary, but I don't have any appetite these days. I feel kind of sluggish. Irregularity? You need Carter's pills. Carter's pills. Bauhaus. Bauhaus. Without the house. Radio Flom, you were listening to Radio Flom. Don't confuse legibility with communication. And just because something's legible doesn't mean it communicates. And more importantly, doesn't mean it communicates the right thing. Graphic designer David Carson from Helvetica, a Gary Hustwit film. 2007. <laughs> it's a very thin line between simple and clean and powerful, and simple and clean and uh, boring. Recorded live before a studio. And here is Rose Montez. The song is called Again, and it's a song that I wrote. Five, six, seven, eight. Think I'll never let myself fall again. Sick of hearing, no, let's just be friends. the end oh not again not 
start again I really want to fall in love again But really don't want this to be the end Let's start again, start again I know I'll never let myself Radio Flom is sponsored in part by Carter's Little Liver Pills. They do the work of Calamo without the danger of Calamo. Go to your local drugstore and try our 5 cent size. Guaranteed your money back immediately. Diego Val Music at DiegoVal.com LTHMMusic.com And our awesome level sponsor, Squadcast.fm. Remote interviews for professional podcasters. Uh, less is more. Less is more. From Sacramento, the heart of California, and around the world, this has been Radio Flom. Recorded live before a studio. Contributors this week in order were... Chad André. Milk Surface. Steve Mehalo. Richard Razo. Jeu de Pré. Vicky Brown. Matropé. Und. The Guests of for to Triblou. Verodo plus Dario Rubin. Bob Nevarin a guest appearance en ER. Kevin Scott Brown. Paul Rouen. Inamironiuk. Arnold Schoenberg plus Genesis. Stacy Chernek. Mehalo Kitty. This is the bridge. Jenny Soto. Groropius. Mew. Tristicia Langorem. Et. Rose Monté. Also featured were. Les annonces de. Jason Spear. Audrey Daguette. Et. Cliff Allen. Radio Flom is produced by Steve Mehalo Avec Milk Surface Comme lui-même Theme music by Chelsea Davis Sound design and engineering by Steve Mahalo Radio Flom is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License However, recordings of contributors or guests of Radio Flom are still protected under international copyright law. Radio Flom contains works featured for review, opinion, critique, and or artistic transformation, and may contain adult content and nudity. Want to be featured on Radio Flom? Drop us a note at www.flom.us slash contact Flom is a modern art game app art history resource 
faux historical art movement that uses new media to generate interest in art history and education. Flom is an online connection to art history, music, and beyond through Tumblr, Instagram, and other social medias. We are all Flomist, and you can be too. Donations graciously accepted at patreon.com slash flomus. We are at Flomus on most social medias. Flom is sometimes explained, but usually not. This is Cliff Allen saying thank you for listening, and if you enjoyed this podcast, well, do something about it. I'm currently right now in Weimar, Germany. Of course, the original Bauhaus city. This is, has become uh, my second home, and uh, I really enjoy it here. Circle, square, or triangle? I'm more of a triangle myself. Does Gropius eat food?